1: Happy Tuesday. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. Welcome to those listening on radio, on stream, on podcast, and watching us on Twitter's Periscope Live, Facebook Live, and YouTube Live. Um, I am not doing product placement for those who happen to see the Starbucks thing. Um, I just really like their Breve Latte. And this is my second coffee of the day because I didn't sleep well last night. Second, Yes, to the two people at Ralph's Supermarket who were staring at me. Yes, I am me. It's kind of scary when you see like, you know, TV makeup above the mask and then like, you know, professional, professional sort of shirt for radio. But on the bottom, like, you know, sweats and slippers. It's confusing. (laughs) And a beat up old jean jacket that needs to go into the wash. Anyway, this is Tuesday. I'm Leslie Marshall. And first of all, I hope all of you are safe and I hope you get your electricity back on. I know there are many of you in many states that are freezing. I grew up in Boston. I've lived through uh, blizzards. I live in California right now. It's uh, in the 60s, which is cold for some Californians, uh, but certainly um, I know you're paying those of you who've had uh, no power. We've had that here in California um, with uh, fires and high winds. I've also lived through it in the various cities and states. I've lived uh, in, in You know, Buffalo, New York, Chicago, Illinois, Houston, Texas, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, Miami, Florida. So I've been through hurricanes. I've been through tornadoes. I've been through... Um, earthquakes, and I've been through terrible, uh, I've been through hail, sleet, ice, snow. No, I'm not a postal worker. guess I should be uh, with that. But um, quite frankly, I I know how bad it can be, especially if you're not um, expecting these kind of temperature drops in some places. And uh, when it's so cold for so long, it can be very difficult. Pipes can freeze up. I, I posted on Twitter, there was a guy that took boiling water, and I think he was in Texas, and he threw it in the air and it froze you know, right there, you know, in the air. It can be very dangerous, especially for pets. Keep your pets indoors. It can be dangerous for children. There are some areas that worry about frostbite, that area where the guy threw the boiling water that would freeze in the air. So stay indoors, stay safe. I hope you get your power. I certainly hope you will stay warm and be smart. I'm not trying to be smart here. Uh, uh, You know, when I say I I don't mean intelligent smart, I mean snarky. Um, Just it amazes me how uh, Republican states will just, you know, demonize Democratic presidents. But then when they're in a time like this, you know, they beg them for funding. And unlike our former president, this president doesn't look if you have a blue state, a red state or a blue governor or a red governor. He looks at the need uh, based on what the weather has done uh, to these areas that have been hit uh, the hardest and will provide that because he is a human being. Uh, And then also just want to also say that it just amazes me. That in in some of these states, my, even my own, when you know you when it, when you have a storm like this, Texas, for example, right? It's like freezing. Stay off the roads. Stay indoors. And people do it, right? They they'll do it for the weather. Why can't they wear a mask for the virus? I still can't wrap my head around that. Anyway, I'm Leslie Marshall. Let's kick it off and check what is ripped from the headlines. To to joining us later uh, regarding some things uh, all COVID uh, with a great member of our medical community from Johns Hopkins. Speaker Pelosi, Democrat of California, uh, in a letter to House Democrats uh, yesterday, said there will be an independent 9-11 type commission to be set up to investigate the January 6th U.S. Capitol insurrection. I just wanna bring up, Republicans were trying to blame her. Now, let me explain something, okay? here Here's where two plus two is four. If you're guilty, if you were in charge of what led to January 6th and you're guilty, you're not going to have a commission cuz that commission is going to find out that you were guilty. Just like Hillary Clinton sat for 11 hours because and she didn't she, she didn't really have to show up. How many people don't show up, right? When they're when they're called, John Bolton, Ambassador Bolton, we had him here on the program, right? How many people don't show up when they're called, right? We've seen that from plenty of Republicans. Um, Hillary Clinton sat for 11 hours and what did they decide after 17 investigations, bipartisan investigations? They found zero evidence that she was responsible from Benghazi. And by the way, that's what this and any commission and investigation into January 6th will find. Uh, Speaker Pelosi certainly would not bring harm to her colleagues, her house, herself, her staff. Uh, so the Republicans, um, I think she beat them at their own game because they were like, we should have an investigation. And she's like, I agree, let's do it. <laughs> and And so that little, let's blame it on Pelosi, You know, it percolated and then it just uh, died down. But here's why it matters, because there were calls for a bipartisan commission to investigate the deadly attack growing in recent weeks. It certainly has escalated since the acquittal of former President Trump over the weekend of charges of high crimes and misdemeanors. This could be the last avenue for some lawmakers to hold Trump accountable for the siege. Republicans who support an independent inquiry include Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina. I was surprised about that. You know, Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell, have become like, um, you know, have multiple personality disorder. And I, and I don't, you know what, I really shouldn't say that because there are people who really suffer from that. Um, let me phrase it a different way. Those two individuals seem to be so blatantly hypocritical that it's almost like they have a dual personality. Is that a better way to put it? Because um, Senator Lindsey Graham acquitted the president, talks with the president, assures the president, says the president's going to help the party in 2022. Uh, Lindsey Graham seems to be all about Trump uh, being in charge of still the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell, not so much. But Mitch McConnell had the opportunity, we all know, to have a quick trial before Trump left office. Then he and his other Republicans, you know, couldn't say, hey, this is unconstitutional. He's no longer in office. He is now a private citizen. The bottom line is, what Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell are doing, and Mitch McConnell more so, is they are straddling the fence of the GOP between the Marjorie Taylor Greene QAnon folks in the Republican Party, and there are plenty of them, look at the polls just recently that came out this week, um, and and um, in the past few days, and then the moderate centrist GOP members, the Reagan GOP, Reagan Republicans, uh, you know, the ones that say, Hey, you know, some of them, the president was uh, guilty of inciting uh, an insurrection on January 6th. Uh, Anyway, uh, this is what our speaker is saying, quote, to protect our security, our security, our security. Our next step will be to establish an outside independent 9-11 type commission to investigate and report on the facts and causes relating to the domestic terror attack upon the United States Capitol complex. That was said in her letter. She further went on to say, quote, and relating to the interference with the peaceful transfer of power, including facts and causes relating to the preparedness and response of the United States Capitol Police and other federal state and local law enforcement in the national capital region. Now, for the record, Pelosi last month appointed Lieutenant General Russell Honoré to conduct a security infrastructure review of the Capitol following the riots. In other words, this was sort of in play behind the scenes. After consulting with Honoré, she wrote yesterday that she would move forward with plans for emergency funding laws to provide for the safety of members and the security of the Capitol. We forget this is not just about our elected officials. This is about people who work there. This is about security personnel, Capitol police. Uh, This is about people who cook in the building. This is about staff members who work in the building, interns who work in the building, often without pay, people who clean the floors, people who are uh, maintenance people, a mechanics, a plumbers, electricians. All of these individuals' lives were at risk. And by the way, a number of them contracted COVID after January 6th as well. Uh, to make a note here, uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, James Comer, a Republican from Kentucky, Devin Nunes, Republican from California, and Rodney Davis, Republican from Illinois, actually wrote to her yesterday to express concerns about the independence of Honore and his final recommendations and whether the speaker would have an influence on the outcome. Now, this 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 is what you want to watch. Legislation would probably be needed to establish a commission like the one created following the attacks on September 11th back in 2001. And then uh, President George W. Bush signed a law giving the panel investigation powers, uh, noted by the New York Times. We could see a similar situation with our current president, Joe Biden. Let's rip another. Now the lawsuits might come, one of which is from the NAACP that was filed today against former President Trump and far-right extremist groups in connection with the January 6th Capitol riots that killed five people and injured dozens of officers. We also want to mention two officers took their lives, so technically the Uh, The the January 6th riots resulted in the death of seven people, even though two took their lives. Uh, The federal lawsuit filed on behalf of House Homeland Security Chairman Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, shows that Trump continues to face legal problems stemming from the riot, even after his acquittal in the Senate impeachment trial over the weekend. The lawsuit filed in the U.S. District Court in D.C. by the NAACP and the civil rights law firm Cohen Milstein Sellers and Toll accuses the former president, his attorney, Rudy Giuliani, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, of conspiring to incite a riot at the Capitol with the goal of preventing Congress from certifying the 2020 presidential election. It um, alleges that Trump, Giuliani, and the far-right groups directly violated the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act by trying to prevent Congress from carrying out its official uh, duties. Um, I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines. Second, uh, we will talk more about ripped from the headlines and then with our guest right after this, don't go away.
0: you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com.
1: We are back doing my online stuff uh, during the break there. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Um, we are going to continue now with what is ripped from the headlines i looking to see, oh boy, I got a lot, right, to cover. Um, I just wanted to share with you because I had just uh, talked about the, uh, the, the, the lawsuit, um, excuse me, the lawsuit regarding the uh, 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act. Uh, that allowed President Grant, uh, Ulysses Grant, to declare martial law and impose heavy penalties against terrorist organizations and use military force to suppress the KKK after uh, the civil uh, war. Uh, but let me tell you about what the Biden administration announced today. Today, they announced it's extending the moratorium on home foreclosures and the enrollment window for mortgage forbearance. And that will be through the summer, June. Now, remember, um, uh, allegedly we're going to be all vaccinated by April or May. Um, and you need to get your vaccine, by the way, you need to get your vaccine. My husband's uh, had his and uh, he is a healthcare worker And I will wait in line for mine and hopefully my children, I don't know if my children get the adult one because uh, my daughter's turning 13, my son is turning 14. Yikes, two teens in the house, right? Um, But they don't have a vaccine for children as of yet. They're working on that as well. Um, But why does this matter? Well, obviously, many Americans are struggling to make home payments uh, since the COVID-19 pandemic uh, commenced. Uh, Both programs were set to expire in March. The actions are an extension of a program the Trump administration did start back in 2020, and the Department of Housing and Urban Development (HUD), uh, the VA Veterans Affairs, and the and, and Agriculture will carry out the executive action, according to the White House. New relief will provide up to six months of additional mortgage payment forbearance in three-month increments for borrowers who intended who entered, excuse me, the program on. Or before June 30th, 2020, the White House wrote in a news release today, quote, now homeowners will receive urgently needed relief as we face this unprecedented national emergency. Today's actions build on steps the president took on day one to extend foreclosure moratoriums for federally guaranteed mortgages. And I think that's the right move. Let's rip another. Another right move President Joe Biden did, in my opinion, was reopening the federal health insurance marketplace, and that was yesterday, that is for another three months, 90 days, citing the importance of access to health care when more than one out of 12 Americans has now been infected with the coronavirus. Uh, And and why does it matter? Well, nearly 15 million Americans are still uninsured and the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic rages on. By the numbers, per Axios Caitlin Owens, of the 15 million people eligible for coverage, under the affordable care act 4 million are eligible for the free high deductible plan 4.9 million would qualify for a subsidized plan 6 million wouldn't qualify for any subsidy but you know you just look at the numbers that's you know almost a third that can benefit from this plan in one way or another and i have to say politics aside even though i didn't like trump and i didn't like his politics uh, you don't need a degree from harvard university in rocket science to know you don't You don't put up barriers to individuals trying to obtain health insurance when you're in the middle of a a health pandemic, a health crisis. Let's rip another. And the Biden administration and Democrats on the Hill are expected later this week to release an immigration reform bill. That's according to multiple sources familiar with the plan that was reported to NBC News. The legislative text of the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021 will reflect the immigration priorities that President Joe Biden unveiled on his first day in office. So the proposal includes an earned pathway to citizenship for the approximately 11 million undocumented immigrants in our nation, expands the refugee settlement program, And deploys more technology to the southern border. There are additional protections that are being considered in that legislation, such as asylum processing in home countries for minors, expanding benefits for DREAMers, and ending the public charge rule. Now, while there have been previous attempts at massive immigration reform, they have failed. And that's whether it was a Republican or a Democratic administration. The Biden White House has signaled support for breaking the legislation into pieces so we could get pieces of it uh, done um, at a time. And uh, as a potential secondary path, lawmakers would work to pass bills legalizing farm workers and dreamers right away. And then they would move toward a more expansive overhaul. The main objective, according to officials and the advocates, they, they say, is is progress, which we, we're at a standstill, right? I mean, uh, Marilena Hincapay, Executive Director of the National Immigration Law Center said, quote, if certain parts of the bill become building blocks, that's fine. Some parts of Biden's immigration reform already do have vehicles to move separately and faster through both the House and the Senate. Senator Robert Menendez, the New Jersey Democrat, is leading the push, uh, the legislative push in the Senate. Uh, He said, quote, this plan is not only about fixing our broken immigration system. And by the way, there's there's a support from the majority of individuals in this country, overwhelming majority. Um, to, uh, to get citizenship for dreamers first and foremost, right? I mean, so that's something we can agree on. So I like, let's you know, if we can't get the whole pie, let's cut it up into pieces and pass it a little bit at a time. Uh, better than nothing at all. We need to move forward. We need to do something. I can't imagine the limbo these individuals face every time they go to sleep and every time they wake up in the morning, day after day. So uh, Senator Menendez said, this plan is not only about, and I quote, this plan is not only about fixing our broken immigration system, but building a better one that reunites families, brings the undocumented community out of the shadows and on a path to citizenship, stands up for human rights, addresses root causes of migration and includes a smart border security strategy. And Representative Linda T. Sanchez, uh, the Democrat from California who's spearheading this legislative effort in the House, uh, she said many people are still uh, you know, relying on these reforms to come about. She said, quote, from our dreamers to the service workers and farmers pulling us through this pandemic, there are too many relying on this reform for us to fail. I look forward to working with President Biden as well as my House colleagues to finally make our immigration system more functional, fair and humane. Uh, President Biden already signed a raft of executive actions reforming targeting immigration and rolling back Trump's efforts on immigration and to fam- and to separate families. Um, I, I I just want to say... The Latino community has been disproportionately affected by COVID, not just the virus, but um, as far as uh, financial, not just physical. They are essential workers. If you're having a bowl of fruit or a salad, you know, you can you can bet that there are undocumented workers somewhere in that line between when the, 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 the fruit was harvested and picked till it gets to your bowl, your plate into your mouth and goes into your belly. Um, And these individuals pay taxes, by the way, Um, yet they don't get any benefit from the taxation that they pay, right? They're afraid to go to hospitals. They can't vote. They're demonized by those on the right in our country. And uh, it's about time that we stop ignoring people that have been here longer than some of us who were born here. Let's rip another now, the pandemic has not been kind to Fresno, California. That's the poorest major city in California. I think, by the way, that is Kevin, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy's district, if I'm not uh, mistaken. The unemployment rate there spiked above 10 percent and has stubbornly remained there. Violent crime has surged. Homelessness, uh, tax revenue has plummeted as businesses have shuttered. Lines at food banks are filled with first timers. But as bad as it's been, things could get worse uh, hundreds of jobs uh, that were uh, froze, have, have been frozen. Cities now being forced to consider laying off 250 people, including police and firefighters, to close a $31 million budget shortfall. That, Jerry Dyer, mayor of the half-million-strong city in the Central Valley, is going to be devastating. Uh, yes, for all of those people that say it's blue Democrat-governed areas that are the problem. Right. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines. Coming up, our great guests... Stick around. We'll be back right after this.
0: Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets.
1: Hey there, I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. We welcome back Dr. Bob Bollinger. He is the Raj and Kamala Gupta Professor of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and he holds joint appointments in international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and in community public health at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. He's also the founding director of the Center for Clinical Global Health Education, the CCGHE. The center is doing a lot of COVID-19 related work, not only in this country, uh, but beyond our borders their website do check it out during the break is maine.ccghe.net that's maine m-a-i-n uh and then on facebook go to uh, facebook.com forward slash ccghe uh, dr bollinger more than a pleasure to have you back on the show i know you're busy so thank you for taking the, si- the time to be with us today i am honored and appreciate your
2: expertise thank you nice to see you again leslie thank you
1: um the CDC has now released school guidelines and I mean there's just so much with regard to you know opening the classrooms you know you're obviously not a teacher uh you are a teacher in a different respect but you know you're not a public school teacher you're not a part of a teachers union and you're certainly not politically affiliated with regard to this you talk to us all the time just about you know the health aspect the medical aspect so first and foremost the guidelines that the CDC has released from a medical standpoint, how do they rate? Do you like them? Do you feel they're they're not sufficient? Do you feel there's some contradictory information out there?
2: Well, I think there's certainly a big improvement over the recommendations we've had before, which you know from the CDC in the past uh, months have been pretty vague. These are much more specific, a little clearer. Um, um, and I think that's really helpful. Um, And of course, the recommendations and guidelines, you know, there's not, they're not mandates, they have to be, you know, reviewed and interpreted and implemented by, you know, local jurisdictions, but it's a lot clearer, I think, uh, what they're suggesting, what they're recommending now than what has been in the past. So That's a big improvement.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm glad that you put that. It's, you know, CDC isn't holding a gun to anyone's head. They're saying, look, from our, you know, our medical standpoint, you know, here's what we have. One of the things I like that's been criticized with these uh, guidelines and these recommendations, doctor, is um, the flexibility uh, within those tiers. For example, Um, obviously, geography plays a part during uh, winter. I live in Southern California, where I can open the window right now and I'm not going to freeze to death. Same in Florida. That's not the case in the majority of this country. Um, And I say that because, obviously, some schools would really require ventilation systems more than others. How necessary are those from a medical perspective? Because we know restaurants uh, shopping centers, uh, supermarkets may not have those types of ventilation systems either. And we are there and perhaps exposing our children to that as well.
2: Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's, um, that these this discussion has highlighted is that, you know, we really need to be paying attention to ventilation. We've, ta- we've talked a lot about hand hygiene, about cleaning surfaces, particularly in schools and other uh, workplaces, which are that's always that's always important. But listen, we wouldn't have to clean the surfaces if this virus wasn't getting into the air and landing on surfaces, right? So this is an airborne virus. You know, people breathe it out, cough it out. And that's why it ends up on surfaces. So the ventilation issues are really important. Um, And I think they're important for schools, important for restaurants, important for lots of uh, indoor settings. Um, I think the other issue that that, uh, you talked about is that um, the flexibility is also built into these guidelines for different communities based on the the amount of virus they're seeing in those different communities. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, but I think they're giving guidance and clarity to some of the issues that we've needed for for some time.
1: Yeah, certainly because ventilation is more of an issue in a bigger city with higher COVID infection rates where you have a larger classroom and it is physically impossible to have those children spaced six feet apart. That might be uh, you know possible in smaller, uh, public school communities in the country. Uh, certainly it might be possible in private schools um, where they may have small, smaller classrooms. But some of these big cities where you you have 30, 35, even 40 children in a classroom, they just don't have the physical space to separate them six feet apart. So addressing the ventilation system uh, would be essential. But obviously uh, there are um, individuals in the school system that say, but look at the expense. We're not sure we can afford to do that.
2: Well, you know it is a challenge, of course, for lots of places, but but they're also emphasizing the other things that can be done. The masking is also being emphasized, which is critically important. Um, and they're talking about cohorting and other strategies that that can help take uh, you know some of that risk uh, down. But you're right, every school system is going to have to adjust and implement the guidelines as best they can based on their resources and the and the structure they have in their own classroom. So, I think you know, uh, giving options and clarity to the, the the tools that are available to reduce the risk is important. You know, the other thing that the guidelines highlight, and I think uh, is is also important, is we need to get the kids back to school. Number one, and number two, if you can implement these guidelines, if you can effectively put into place masking and distancing and all the other thing strategies, you can actually uh, reduce the risk considerably that you're going to have spreading of the virus. In the classroom, I mean that the data really supports um, supports that. So if you can do it, you can you can more uh, confidently open the classrooms in a in a more safe environment.
1: Thirty minutes after my radio show ends today, my children are going to school for two hours to work on homework with their peers and their teachers. Woohoo, mommy's gonna have a cocktail, and, um, and because there there's been mental stress and strain. Um, on the kids, but also on the parents, uh, you know, those who work from home and even more so for people that haven't been able to go to work because they can't work from home, you know, and haven't been able to have that uh, sole income coming in or that secondary, you know, income coming in. Um, So uh, I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. There are a lot of people that, especially teachers, even some parents, that are concerned about teachers don't have to be vaccinated. Can you talk to us about this? Because I think a lot of people feel that if teachers get vaccinated, it's easier and better, you know, to open the schools. But, you know, to your point, if you're masking, if you're hand-washing, you're, you know, social distancing, you have the proper ventilation system, is the vaccine just the cherry on top of that Sunday?
2: Well, I mean, I think the issue around around that subject is... Um is probably has to do with with uh, the following. You know, the biggest risk that teachers and other uh, adults who work in schools have for contracting this virus is outside of the school. It's in the community. Um, and so whether they're vaccinated or not, um, they need to be wearing masks. And, and uh, whether they're teachers or not, whether they're staff members or not, they need to be wearing masks uh, with or without the vaccine. Um, and so I think, um, you know, I would love to see all the teachers get vaccinated. In fact, not just teachers, of course, as we said, it's all of the the staff members, particularly those at high risk, should they get infected. But their biggest risk of infection is outside of the school, uh, statistically, Uh, when they're going to the restaurants, when they're, uh, you know, mingling with their friends and family. That's where most of the infections that occur in, in adults are occurring, not in the school itself. So the issue is whether... Uh, to reduce the risk that those teachers, staff members, and students are going to bring the virus into school. Now, you know, vaccination isn't going to really, um, you know, it, it, it it's going to be helpful in any of those situations. So it's not unique to the schools, right? Um, so I'm not sure we necessarily need to uh, uh, focus on the need for vaccination uh, as a high priority uh, or a necessary priority before we open up schools, particularly when the rates are going down. But we have to provide vaccination to everybody including teachers and teachers are you know first responders not yes. just again not just teachers but but other people that work in schools or around other other people i think we should prioritize them and quickly get them vaccinated It'll protect uh, speaking Minnesota, of
1: the, the vaccine a- the vaccine that is out now, doctor, I apologize for the interruption. I thought you were done. Um, the, the vaccine that is out now, uh, that is for adults. But medically, what is considered an adult? Is that 21? Is that 18? Or is that even 12? I say because I've seen studies where it says 12 and up.
2: Well, some of the studies that I've seen have uh, enrolled uh, people over the age of 16 or 18. We don't have data yet on the vaccine safety and efficacy in, in younger younger kids and adolescents, and those studies are going on right now. But it's gonna take some months uh, before we you know, can find, um, convince ourselves that they're safe and efficacious in, in those kids. And so it's gonna be a while before we can vaccinate the kids.
1: Are the variants that we are hearing about of uh, COVID, uh, the mutations of COVID, um, Uh, Do they put children at more risk in your um, research or knowledge of this thus far? The reason I say that is, you know, you see bits and pieces on the news where the UK um, or South African uh, Brazilian uh, variant uh, seems to, in some places even outside the United States, uh, led to more children being hospitalized.
2: Well, it's, I'm not sure it's 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 related to hospitalization, but certainly more kids are getting infected. All of us are getting more likely to get infected, as well as kids. And so when you have more kids getting infected because it's more infectious, then, of course, you're going to unfortunately yeah. have more kids in the hospital. Uh, so it's really these variants are a bit of a wild card. We'll have to see what impact that has, particularly in the United States, as we open up the schools. But we could certainly see these variants more easily spread in the classroom as they are more easily spl- spread in the community.
1: Yeah, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more about schools with our guest, uh, with the good doctor. And I hope you'll stick around. In the meantime, check out the Center for Clinical Global Health Education, the CCGHE. That's where he is founding director. They do a lot of COVID-related work in the U.S. and beyond. Check out their website, maine.ccghe.net. And on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash CCGHE. We'll be back with Dr. Bob Bollinger uh, from Johns Hopkins University right after this.
0: Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets.
1: Well, you know, we're live when you can hear my dog barking in the background. Apologies for those of you that hear it. If you feel it's a distraction, apologies more so to my guest, Dr. Bob Bollinger. Uh, he is the Rajan Kamala Gupta Professor of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He holds joint appointments in international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and to Community Public Health at the JH School of Nursing. Uh, probably uh, you know one of the people in the world that's definitely bus- busier than me and definitely does something a lot more important than I do. Uh, doctor, thank you for holding uh, and uh, you know staying with us uh, for the second half of the uh, interview.. Um, you already shared as a physician, um, you know, what you think of the guidelines. Um, are are the doctors and public health experts that you would come into contact with, uh, you know, in agreement with you, would you say that, you know, these are more specific guidelines that had been set forth prior to, this, uh, to the uh, CDC's guidelines in the last administration versus now?
2: Yeah, I, uh, you know, I would say that uh, for the most part, people agree that this is a step in the right direction.
1: Uh, awesome. Um, I wanted to ask this. I have a twelve and thirteen year old, and I'm asking personally, but I'm asking you know about age, okay? And you know, uh, I, i'm I'm assuming you have children. Um, if not, you may be smarter than I <laughs> right now. Um, but when you look at some of these uh, guidelines and they talk about middle school um, versus uh, high school, for example, example, I'm getting to that part of the document, on on the CDC guidelines, Um, They say that middle and high schools can safely operate in person at all but the highest level of transmission, which is defined in two ways. When 10 percent or more of the coronavirus tests in the community come back positive over a seven day period or when there are 100 or more virus cases per 100,000 people in the community over seven days. The reason I ask is right now, my kid's school, which is right down the street and I just passed a bunch of kids, K through two, kindergarten through second grade, um, is operating. Uh, at many schools uh, here in Southern California. And I live in Los Angeles County. Some people I know in in my parental circles question, how come we can send the younger kids back before the older kids? Because younger kids, I think, pick their nose more, touch their face more, touch each other and each other's faces more, and have a hard time, harder time keeping a mask on than a middle school or, or a high school student. Um, you know, so could you speak to that for us, why the older children are being kept back from school longer than the younger kids?
2: Well, I mean, you'd have to ask uh, Rochelle wolinsky because uh, I'm sure she she's also uh, has kids as well, so she probably could answer this question herself. Um, I look, you know, we uh, having raised three teenagers who are no longer teenagers and um, and middle schoolers, um, I'm not so. I'm not sure. If I would agree entirely with your premise that um, that the uh, older kids are better behaved than the younger kids <laughs> necessarily. You know my children then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mike. You know you. Then you must have known mine. <laughs> uh, I think it's true for all kids. Look, I think the the one of the challenges is you know, with the younger kids. They've been able to keep the kids in a single classroom, generally cohorting easier, and the kids are actually you know based on Mike's you know conversations with with teachers and parents. Uh, particularly, even in the 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 uh, the really young kids, they're pretty good at putting their masks on, and they're easier to kind of keep on, keep an eye on, right? They're usually in a smaller classroom or in a group, and they're not mingling from class to class. They're not milling around the whole school, moving from one bubble, if you will, to another bubble. They're not running out behind the school to to you know to congregate with each other uh, as easily as the younger kids. So the The older kids are at greater risk for, if you will, breaking the bubbles, right? Um, Right. And I think that's the issue why at a higher transmission rate, you have to be more concerned about the older kids.
1: Do you think these guidelines will encourage more school districts to bring students back into the classrooms? I mean, certainly there are fights between different unions. Randy Weingarten is a friend of this program is the uh, president of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers. But there are other unions, as we saw in Chicago, for example, where they're saying, look, we're not comfortable going back. We want to be vaccinated. And then some school districts do have or some states do have teachers um, at at top of the list with healthcare workers and first responders uh, to get vaccinated. Um, So, uh, you know, even though this is, you know, the CDC saying, you know, here are the guidelines. it, It doesn't encourage more districts to bring students back into the classroom. It doesn't make it easier in a sense.
2: Well, I think it provides uh, – look, I, first of all, I think I, I think the teachers are just as anxious to, to get the kids back in school as the rest of us, right? Many of them are parents as well. They understand the value of, of, of why it's important to get them back. But they want to do it safely, not only for themselves and for the staff, but for the kids, right? So I think it's all about – providing as a safe a possible opportunity uh, and, and guidance to get back in the classroom. And these guidelines help do that. So I'm hoping that these guidelines are going to help move us forward to a place where the teachers and the parents and the students all feel like uh, um, it's safer to, to open up and get the kids back at school. Um, <clears throat> but I do understand the concerns, particularly, you know, uh, teachers and other staff who we were at high risk for serious disease. Um, but again, uh, you know, the, the risk of acquiring infection in the school uh, depends a lot more on what's happening outside the school than it does within the school. As long as you have the guidelines in place and follow the CDC guidelines, you have really uh, have an opportunity to greatly mitigate the risk. People aren't following these CDC school guidelines out in the community. If we did that, we wouldn't have this problem, right?
1: No, abs- absolutely. And, and to that point, and you had touched upon one of these two earlier, I think there's this idea that once you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear masks. There's also this idea we even have a legislator, Senator Rand Paul, who, ha- who got COVID and survived and doesn't wear a mask because he thinks he's immune. The evidence, the, it, it, the jury is still out on that. Correct me if I'm wrong, doctor.
2: There's two issues. Uh, number one, just because you're immune uh, doesn't mean, or vaccinated doesn't mean you can't get infected and transmit the, the virus to other people unknowingly, just like asymptomatic infections do all the time around the, the, the country. So it's irresponsible, in my view, particularly somebody who's been infected, to to not wear a mask to protect others from uh, infection. We also all have the issue now with some of the new variants that, that there's some evidence you can get reinfected um, with the new variants. And so we're not entirely sure yet how, um, you know, the, the the data looks pretty good for the most common variants, but we're just beginning to learn about our own variants here in the United States. We'll have to see. So there is a potential risk for reinfection as well. But Dr. More, Fauci, we
1: Dr. Anthony, but, others. Oh, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci said that um, we should all uh, be vaccinated or there'll be enough vaccines for us to all be vaccinated. Uh, I think he had said, you know, April or May, Biden administration also says by April or May. How realistic is that in your opinion?
2: Well, I'm a little biased. I have to show you. I have my little shrine here, my Tony <laughs> Fauci uh, votive candle. candle. This is my. I,
1: I love it. Your Italian Roman Catholic candle for uh, the Italian Roman Saint-
2: Catholic. candle. So I, I, I uh, have a lot of confidence in Tony's uh, recommendations. Uh, he, you know, he's made he's making adjustments based on the data that's available. So you know, they're tracking how much vaccine these manufacturers are able to get out as quickly as possible. And so his estimates on when, you know, we're going to have wide, um, you know, availability of vaccines is based on that, which is changing from week to week, depending on the manufacturing issues that each of these, these uh, companies are dealing with. We also have another vaccine from Johnson & Johnson that's in the pipeline. And, you know, we're not quite sure yet when it's going to get approved, for example, and, and when it can actually be released. And all of that is sort of shifting the, the sand a little bit on the, on, the, on the calendar of when we're going to have full access. Some people, obviously,
1: as you know, you see the numbers are afraid to get the vaccine. And then some people see things like congressional members that were vaccinated or at least had the first vaccine uh, getting infected after January 6th. uh, As an example, um, you know, with the riots that took place on Capitol Hill. Is that because most likely in your medical uh, professional opinion that there is a time frame I've heard between 10 and 12 days that the first vaccine builds up into your system or prepares your immune system before the second round?
2: Well, that's certainly part of it. Yeah, I mean, we know that, it, and it also takes two vax, two two injections, really, to achieve full immunity for at least the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. And uh, most of the data suggests you got to be about two to three weeks after your second vaccine to be fully protected. But but don't forget, none of those people ended up in the hospital. They got none of those people that got infected ended up in the hospital. And what people have to keep in mind is that, you know, we've had four hundred and 70,000 plus Americans die of this infection who were not vaccinated. Mm. And vaccine is the vaccines that we have now are incredibly helpful in protecting people from dying from this infection. So think about what would have happened to those 470,000 plus people if we'd had the vaccine a year ago or six months ago and they were able to be vaccinated. Many, many of those lives would have been saved. You've
1: probably seen and heard the stats regarding healthcare workers who were hesitant to 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 being vaccinated. I'm sure you may even know some of those people. Um, what what do you say to that?
2: Yeah, I think we've got vaccine hesitancy in lots of uh, parts of our society. I'm not sure, you know, what to say to the healthcare workers who understand the science. I think um, I'm not sure what the reasons are for vaccine hesitancy. I think a bigger challenge is the fact that we, as a as a society, have Uh, you know, lost the trust, if you will, of big parts of our community who are actually suffering the most from this disease, our Latino community, our African-American community, our native communities at really high risk. And that's, you know, that's a challenge for all of us. We've got to do a better job uh, communicating, educating and supporting um, those communities who are at greatest risk to get the vaccine and make sure they have access to it. But uh, for good reasons and many historic reasons, they don't trust uh, what they're hearing. And we need to work on that incredibly hard. I think that's the biggest challenge we have, vaccination.
1: Right. The, the disproportionately affected and uh, disproportionately um, non trusting And who can blame them, right? Doctor, thank you for being with us. Light Dr. Fauci's candle for me <laughs> so we can uh, all get vaccinated. Thank you so much. Dr. Bob Bollinger, Fauci Director. Thank you. Take care. Health Education, C-C-G-H-E, uh, ch- check them out, bean.ccghe.net on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash C-C-G-H-E.
0: Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name and Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry. I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus. The Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool. Only from Progressive. The and and afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. There's a lot we can't control during this pandemic. It's scary. But there's one thing I can do to protect my kids from other serious diseases, like measles and whooping cough. And that's getting us all caught up on vaccines. Learn more at iVaccinate.org.